Hello, thank you for tuning in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Jeremiah has been speaking judgment and then God, the God of hope, doesn't just speak of judgment, speaks of hope. Of restoration. There are times in life when things look hopeless, no way out of a disastrous situation. So who can you trust? In whom or what do you put your hope? History tells us that God brought restoration out of the hopeless situation of the Israelite captivity in Egypt. History is repeated when God brought restoration to the hopeless situation of the Israelite exile to Babylon. Restoration is what Jesus brought to the hopeless situation of our sin. Can you see the pattern? Let's join Dr. Corbett now for a look at the God of new hope and restoration. Father, we pray on this very important day as we commemorate the resurrection of Christ, as we celebrate the birth of the church, as we celebrate what you have done and only you could do, we pray, Lord, that your, your word would grip our hearts and grip our minds and grip our souls in a way, Lord, that only your word can. And now, Lord, I pray that for those people who are listening to me right now who are in a point of their life where it seems hopeless, that today they would receive hope. Father, for those who feel what they have done can never be forgiven, they've gone too far, I pray today that you would transact forgiveness in their soul. And Father, for those that have grown cold or lukewarm or drifted, I pray today you would take them by the hand and put them back on the path to home. In Jesus' name, amen. Because we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 16, I would like you to uh, turn there, please. Jeremiah chapter 16, we're going to be looking... Uh, verses 14 to 21 and we're going to look at at this section which we're calling the God of new hope and restoration. So we're going to read verse 14 and it's in the context that Jeremiah has been speaking judgment and then God, the God of hope, doesn't just speak of judgment, speaks of hope, speaks of restoration and let's see if you can hear it. We're in Jeremiah, it's on page 644 in my Bible. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Uh, You might know in the history of Israel, the event that that saw Israel come out of Egypt was the most defining moment in Israel's history. There is a word for it. We'll we'll look at that in a moment. But I want you to see this because here Jeremiah has been prophesying of the certain doom of the nation and here God is saying, but what I'm going to do after this will make what I did when I brought you out of Egypt seem like a forgotten memory. I'm going to do something so grand so wonderful for you that you won't, you won't speak of Egypt as the most glorious day in your history. You'll speak of what I'm about to do as your most glorious day. Isn't this, this is wonderful. This is the God who's hammering them over sin and holding them to account and, and speaking of their certain judgment and then says, but I'm going to do something wonderful in your midst. 
It's going to make Egypt look like a forgotten memory. Wow. This tells us something about God. It tells us that God not only is able to turn the hopeless into the hopeful, not only does it tell us that, it tells us that he does. Not only can he, he does. And in a moment we're going to show a picture of the very God who's uttering these words, Jesus, and show you how he demonstrated this kind of hope. Now, I want you to, if you can, if you can hold your finger there, come with me now as we illustrate this into the Gospel of John. We're going John chapter 11, and I think we'll start at verse 33. And so here we have the seventh miracle that Jesus did. We're reading from verse 33. I'll just paint the picture if you're not familiar with it. His very good friend, Lazarus, has died. He's been dead four days. And word has come to Jesus, your friend Lazarus is dead, will you please come? And he's dying, will you please come and heal him? And Jesus says, nothing, nothing, just ignores it for days, ignores it. His own disciples are wondering, why is he ignoring this? And eventually he tells them, because you're going to see the glory of God now. And so we have this picture. Of course, you may be aware that Lazarus's sister is someone who, if we understand correctly, poured ointment all over Jesus' feet and wiped his sandy feet with her hair and heard Jesus tell those present, those who are forgiven much, love much. And perhaps you're here today and your love for Jesus is lukewarm or even cold. Maybe it's because you don't realise what he's done for you. We're reading verse 33, John chapter 11. We pick the story up here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So he sees Lazarus's sister, Mary, weeping, very upset. Jesus is moved. And the next verse, the people who put the verse numbers in the Bible thought, we just need to make this a verse. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. Every Sunday school kid loves this verse. We, we read in verse 34, we'll get to the verse in a moment. He said, and where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Here's the verse. Jesus wept. And the Jesus who's speaking right here is the same Jesus who uttered the words to Jeremiah in John 16, verse 14. It was Jesus from heaven speaking to Jeremiah. That one day I will make the memory of Egypt and your deliverance from Egypt seem like a distant memory for what I'm about to do. And here we have a glimpse of what Jesus can do. Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps. Oh boy, books have been written on the explanation of every one of those tears. 
Why was he weeping? Some say he was weeping because if only he got there a day or two or four days earlier, he could have prevented his good friend Lazarus from dying and he could have eased the ache in Mary's heart. I've heard explanations like that. I've heard that Jesus was so moved because his friend had died and he was moved with tears of compassion and and people say, see, he's, he's human, he, he gets this. But the best explanation that I've heard comes from my posthumous mentor, F.W. Boren, who says this, and he's quoting someone writing in the 4th century. He says, The crowds were gathered, all eyes were on Jesus, Jesus stands in front of the tomb, where have you laid him? In that tomb. Jesus is about to say, roll that stone away. With tears streaming down his face, he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Because of all the people there, all the priests, all the rabbis, all the Pharisees, all the friends, all the family. There was only one person who knew where Lazarus really was. And he wasn't in that tomb. And for what Jesus was about to do, was one of the cruelest things he could have done to Lazarus because he knew where Lazarus was. And he knew what no one else knew, what it really is like after this life. And if you knew, and if I really knew, we would long for that day, I guess. But here in this moment, Jesus, who knew what he was about to do to his friend Lazarus, is almost tears, I'm sorry, Lazarus, I've got to bring you back. (laughs) Doesn't that paint death in a whole different light? And here's Lazarus, enjoying, enjoying presence, the presence of God. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour. I love the way the King James puts that. Lord, by this time he should stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! That's what he did, isn't it? Why are you looking at me like, why did he just yell? Because it says he cried out with a loud voice. This is called dramatic reading. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, uh, said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, we could look, uh, I'm, I think that is the most amazing miracle in the Bible. Part of, uh, uh, with the exception of Jesus' own resurrection, that's it. You know, you can go to Israel today and they'll, they'll actually take you to the tomb of Lazarus. And on his 
stone, his gravestone, it says, Lazarus, friend of Jesus, died twice. Isn't that amazing? He died twice. Because he, he died after this again. We could also, we haven't got the time to, and it doesn't serve the purpose for, for what I'm looking at now, is look at the staggering response of the Pharisees in the next verse. Absolutely bewildering. But it shows me that there are even Christians who say, oh, if we only had God do miracles, people would believe. And I have found that sometimes miracles do cause people to believe, but sometimes miracles actually harden belief, and they harden people against coming to Christ. So I just leave it up to God. I now pray for the sick. Sometimes they're healed instantly, sometimes not, but I just figure God knows what he's doing. Now, this is a wonderful picture of no matter how hopeless your situation is, I don't think it is dead four days, body decay, four days in a tomb, hopeless. So no matter how bad you think your situation is, Jesus Christ can give you hope. And that's why Jesus Christ demonstrated this kind of hope in the midst of hopelessness after what Jesus did with Lazarus. And so you can see here, and come back with me now to Jeremiah 16. You can see that if you know Jesus... You have not just a reason for hope, you have reasons for hope. This Jesus can turn a hopeless situation into a situation filled with hope. Don't we all ask the why question when things go bad, when things go wrong? Don't we all love it when somebody points, tries to answer the why question and says, well, basically things have gone really bad for you because the Greek word is stoofed. You stoofed up your life and... And, and, and they kind of point the finger right at you and, well, thank you, I feel so much better now that I've got the why question answered. Not. And this is not an exercise in always getting the, the why did this happen to me answered. I think a much better question to ask is, what do you want me to do now, Lord? What do you want me to do? That was Saul of Tarsus' response on the road to Damascus. He had been responsible for the murder of followers of Christ. Christ knocks him off his horse. His first response to Jesus is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What? It's a great response. You see, if you know Jesus, you have hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says that before we knew Jesus, we were in the world, in Egypt, without God and without hope. Hope gives us a positive expectation for the future. If you don't know God, you have no reason to have any positive expectation of the future. All you've got is optimism, and optimism will not carry the day. You need to know Jesus. We're now in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 15. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their forefathers. So this is God saying to Jeremiah, yes, Babylon's going to come in. Yes, they're going to take people away. But I will bring them back. I will bring them back. And you know, jumping ahead in the story, he did. He did. They were in captivity for 70 years. We read in Daniel chapter 9 that he realized the 70 years were up. He began to pray and seek God. And they were restored after that. That's what the whole book of Nehemiah is about. And yet there are people today that read that without that historical knowledge and they go, aha, this is a prophecy that God is going to give modern Israel back the land and so on. And that is just wrong. So 
God did restore Israel to his land for them. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. In fact, Israel coming out of all the nations, if you read the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you'll read this account of how God had brought them back. He says this, At the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Listen to where they're from. And they were amazed and astonished. Are these not uh, speaking Galileans? Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. How is it that we hear each in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Why is that being recorded in Acts? Because it wants you to know God fulfilled Jeremiah 16, verse 15. It wants you to know that. It says in Acts 2.11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. So God fulfilled that prophecy, but at the time that Jeremiah gave it, it seemed a hopeless situation. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending for many fishes, declares the Lord. They shall catch them, and afterward I will send for many hunters. They shall hunt for them for every mountain, from every mountain, every hill, out of the clefts of the rocks. And so we read in verse 17, uh, For my eyes are on all their ways, they are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Now, this is a, a really interesting thing. We can take this two ways. Firstly, this is God saying, I will chase down my people who belong to me. I will fish for them. I will hunt them. I will bring them back. That's one way of taking it. Uh, and that's a really nice way of taking it. And that's how God pursues us when we come to know Christ. If you know the story of the Hound of Heaven, the man who wrote the Hound of Heaven, a fellow who was an aristocrat who left his family's fortune, uh, became a drunkard, became an opiate addict, ended up on the streets of London, living under bridges, sleeping under newspapers, Francis Thompson, who would write letters to the London Times that were getting published. They were profound because he had a sharp mind. And eventually a gospel track came along and he gave his life to Christ. And he wrote this story called The Hound of Heaven. He said, as far as I ran, as far as I tried to get away from God, God unleashed the hounds. And the hounds of heaven chased me down. And the hounds of heaven caught me. And I am his Oh man, it's a beautiful sentiment. And here God is saying, I will unleash the fishes. They will catch my people. I will unleash the hunters. They will hunt down my people. God will pursue you. If you it's one of the reasons why I'm pretty confident before Richard Dawkins dies, he will give his life to Christ. Because you cannot hate God with such, such ferocity not to get God's attention. And I think God will do something really cool to Richard Dawkins, and I'm looking forward to that. So I'm very careful that I don't bag out uh, um, Richard Dawkins at all. Although someone said that they were a Dawkinistic, they didn't believe there was a Richard Dawkins. But um... <laughs> now, God is saying, oh, "I see everything you do." Now, why is that such a big deal to God? See, Richard Dawkins says, "Why would God really care about what we do?" I mean, we're so nothing. If this God is true, why would he really care? Why? Because mankind bears a special responsibility to demonstrate to the world what God is like, who God is like. 
to reflect God's character. Why? Because we were created in the what of God? The image of God. We were created to bear God's image. When you lie, you are telling the whole universe the creator is a liar. Do you think God's not ticked off when you do that? You see, of course he is. So God does take an interest in it. We were, we were created to be in covenant relationship with God. God has given us a little picture of that. It's called marriage. And that, that picture of sexual unity only within the bounds of marriage is meant to reflect who God is, to say that God is faithful. When, when we are promiscuous, we are saying God can't be trusted. God just flits here and there. God is unfaithful. I mean, God's not ticked with that. You bet he's ticked with that. It says this, but first... I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they've polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So does God, does God think that idolatry, immorality and, and forsaking his law is a big deal? Yeah, he, he does. Because not only does it break his law, it, it injures us. We're the ones who are worse off for it. And so we need to understand, you know, it says here, um, I, I will repay double for their iniquity. Isaiah the prophet prophesied this. The other prophets refer to the same expression. And it, it shows that for those of us who give our lives to Christ, we, we come under stricter judgment. And that's pretty cool with me because the upside of that is that God actually empowers us to love him and obey him and honour him. And I really enjoy that. And I am constantly being besotted with how magnificently beautiful Jesus is. So we come into verse 19, and we're nearly there. Oh, and get the, get the picture here. Jeremiah hears this, and he has been, for the, for the last 16 chapters, prophesying, pestilence, famine, sword! And suddenly he breaks out in, but that's not where it's going to end. God is going to pick you up like a tender father picks up a young child. God is going to pick you up and he's going to take you out of the hands of the enemy. He's going to put you back in the land and he's going to pour blessing on you. And Jeremiah can hardly believe what's coming out of his mouth. And look what he does now. He breaks out into worship. He breaks out into worship at at what God is now saying. And listen to what he says. Oh, Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. Now, this is the same Jeremiah that about a chapter ago was going, this is terrible. You're a lousy God. You've let me down. I'm sick of doing what you want. Now he goes, oh, God, you're awesome. You are wonderful. What does that tell us? Even the best of God's people have ups and downs. Cut me some slack when I'm having a down, would you please? I'll get back up. Just cut me some slack if I'm having one of those. Oh, this is stupid. Because there will come a time. When you will hear me say, oh, Lord, you are my strength. You are my portion. You are my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. Oh, God, you're wonderful. And look at what he says, the confidence that he has. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. He's speaking of idols. How do we know that? Because we come into verse 20 where it says this, Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. And Jeremiah is prophesying that this is what people will one day say. Oh man, he's pretty excited about this. And so God continues the conversation and he says this, Therefore, behold, I will make them know. I will make them know, God says. 
This once I will make them know my power and my might, that they shall know that my name is the Lord. And that word, capital L, small caps, O-R-D, is the one that cannot be compared to, the one who is and there is no other, the one in whom all power, all love, all grace, all hope resides. And Jeremiah is on his knees, I reckon, at this point. Hands in the air, talking with God. Now, what does Jeremiah tell us in a few chapters? And I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit, and this is where we finish. Because we read in Jeremiah 31 that all of this actually culminates in what's called the New Covenant. And we're in it today, church. This is the New Covenant. The New Covenant is about giving hope to the hopeless. And it's not just available to one nation. It's available to all. Will you please join me with prayer? Let's pray. Close your eyes. Let's do business with God right now. Perhaps you are here and you have been on the outskirts. You have never said, Jesus, take my life. I want to come home. I realise that you love me more than anyone else in the universe. There is no one to whom my allegiance is more deserved than you. And if you know that's you right now, I want you to surrender your life now. Not after you leave, not when you get home, right now. Tell Jesus that you want him to forgive you of your sin. Being religious, as we've heard today, is not going to cut it. We're not talking about being religious. We're not talking about lighting a candle. We're not talking about rubbing beads together. We're not talking about anything you can do. Christianity is not spelt D-O. Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E. It's all been done. And if that's you today, you know that you don't have the kind of peace with God that will get you through eternity. I'm inviting you to pray this prayer right now. And then I want you to come up and see me and let me know that you've done this because I want to help you get started on your journey. Lord Jesus, Please, take me as I am. All my fears, all my failures, I come to you now. Please, Lord, give me hope in the midst of my hopeless situation. Forgive me of my sin and come into my heart, I pray. And help me from this day to live the way you want. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're still praying. Father, I pray for those people that pray that prayer right now. And I pray for us as your people who have grown cold or lukewarm and drifted away, that, Lord, you'll snap us back, bring us back, bring us back to the dinner table, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we as a church would have a passion to be a door of new hope, to the people of this city and this valley. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. The God of new hope and restoration is the same yesterday, today and forever, which means he can be your hope. More from Dr. Corbett in the Jeremiah series next week. For a copy of tonight's program, you can contact us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. 
podcasts and other Finding Truth Matters resources are available from the website, findingtruthmatters.org. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to being able to join you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.